This morning what we want to do is we want to focus on the idea um, about the message being multiplied. We're in a three-part series here at, the, uh, at Golden Hills where we're taking the book of Acts and we're segmenting it into three different parts. One is we are witnesses, which what, what we did in the spring and early summer. Now we're in a segment called we are multiplied. And then uh, coming in the fall, we'll start another segment called we are sent. And what it is is helping us to grasp our identity as Christians. And this morning we're going to see how the message of reconciliation, how it multiplies and so last week, we, through discipleship, are multiplied, but also the message that we speak is multiplied, and it's a message of reconciliation. And it multiplies as we share it while practicing biblical hospitality. Whenever I have an opportunity to preach, I always try to make sure that we have one or two things that we could take home uh, just thinking about it. And this morning is this. We have a message, as we just saying, to tell to the nations it's a message of reconciliation that God loved the world and he's reconciling all things to himself through his son. And this message needs to be shared. But sharing it is most powerfully done in the context of what is called biblical hospitality. So what in the world is biblical hospitality? Um, when I say hospitality, generally speaking, you probably envision doilies and finger foods and quiches. And I just want to tell you, biblical hospitality is this kind of concept. It's where you are generous with what you possess in order to serve other people. So you're generous with what you possess in order to serve other people. That's hospitality. So you can use your house hospitably. You can use food as a, uh, a means of being hospitable, clothing and things like that. Biblical hospitality is being generous with what you have in service of others. And so this morning is all about how the message of reconciliation, it multiplies as we share it vocally, but we do so in the context of hospitality, as we generously share what we possess in the service of others. So let's pray this morning and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for what we just sang about. Thank you that you indeed creating a kingdom, that you are ransoming people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. God, thank you that you've accomplished this through the blood of Jesus and through his resurrection. And now the church stands as a visible entity that demonstrates what you've accomplished on our behalf in Christ. So God, as we approach this text this morning, I pray that you meet with us. I pray that you teach us. I pray that you help us to come to a fuller and richer grasp of the gospel. And above all these things, Lord, I pray that you meet with us and that we, having spent time together worshiping you, will be encouraged and that we leave here emboldened to do what it is you've asked us to do, to be witnesses, to multiply, to glorify you. And so God, teach us now, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you were to read the book of Acts from cover to cover, chapter 1 through chapter 28, generally speaking, you'd probably get into chapter 9 at the end of what we talked about last week, into chapter 10 this week, and you would probably see that there's something unique about what's happening. You see, you have uh, the Apostle Paul who became a Christian, and he's told that through his conversion, he's actually going to go and he's going to share the gospel with the nations. And then we're introduced in chapter 10 to Peter and his ministry to the Gentiles or to the nations. But standing right between uh, Saul on one side and Peter on the other are these two miracles. And it's kind of odd. As you read the narrative of Acts, you're kind of like, why are, why are these here? It's kind of, it seems unusual. Why are they here? So instead of, you know, I have like, let me just say, I have like 50 some verses to cover this morning. So we're going to summarize some stuff. You guys okay with that? All right doesn't matter. I have the microphone. So here we go. So in Acts chapter 9, what we're introduced to is a man named Aeneas. And you can see this from verses 32 to 35. Aeneas is in a town called Lydda. Now as Peter is going around with some of the disciples and he's visiting some of the different churches, he comes to Lydda and he is introduced to a man named Aeneas. Now Aeneas is paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for eight years. Uh, he's not born that way. He probably had a fall or a sickness or something like that. And so when Peter is introduced to Aeneas, he comes to Aeneas and he says this in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. 
Rise and make your bed. Now, when that is all happening, there's a woman named Tabitha who's living in a place called Joppa. Now, she's a, a very influential woman. She's very well liked and very well loved. She's somebody who actually, for the widows in the, in the town, she makes them clothing. And we are told that she dies. Now, this is a powerful moment in the, in the community of Joppa. They're having a hard time just kind of wrestling with what to do now. Many people are just heartbroken. They miss her. And so they de- decide to send an envoy to Lydda to go see if they can retrieve Simon Peter because they heard that he was there. And so they send some people over there to bring him back to Joppa. We don't know exactly what they wanted him to do, but what ended up happening is pretty cool. So we see this in verse 40. So Peter arrives. He puts all the people who were upstairs uh, next to this woman. Um, Her name is Tabitha, but her other name is Dorcas. So we're going to call her Tabitha. And (laughs) he kneels down with her. He begins to pray. And he says this, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Now, when Aeneas was healed, a bunch of people turned to the Lord. And we see in verse 42, a bunch of people now believe in the Lord. It's an amazing thing that has just happened. Through this miracle, people come to know who God is. But the question is, why is it in this narrative? Why is it it, these, these two miracles right in between Saul, who's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and right between Peter, who actually we have an episode of him ministering to the Gentiles? And I think... The answer is really important. The answer is because these, these miracles actually mirror the miracles of Jesus. If you remember in Mark chapter 2, there's a paralytic who is there uh, in the town where Jesus is preaching. And this guy's friends catch wind that Jesus is in the town. So four of them decide to pick up this guy's mat and they cut a hole in the roof and they drop him in front of Jesus. And Jesus heals the man. Amazing. And then in Mark chapter 5, we're told about this guy named Jairus who has a daughter who's sick and she dies. And so they ask Jesus to come to the house. And so Jesus arrives at the house, puts all the people out of the way so that way he can just focus on her. He kneels down next to her and he says this in Mark chapter 5 verse 41. He takes her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kumi. Now what Peter said to Tabitha was this, Tabitha kumi. And so what we have here is Peter performing a miracle very similar to what Jesus performs. The only difference is the word L or the letter L and B. One is Talitha and the other one is Tabitha. And what is that trying to communicate to us? It's trying to communicate to us that the book of Acts is not a story merely of the church and what they were all about. It's a story about what God is doing. It's a story about how Jesus continues to work in the lives of his people. And it also reminds us of something even bigger than that. It reminds us that what Jesus came to do was to redeem, to reconcile, and to restore all things to himself. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in this book called Miracles. He writes this. We find ourselves in a world of transporting pleasures, ravishing beauties, and tantalizing possibilities. But all constantly being destroyed and all coming to nothing. Nature has all the air of a good thing spoiled. But the destiny which Christianity promises to to humanity clearly involves a redemption or remaking of the natural world which could not stop at mankind or even at this planet. We are told in Romans 8 that the whole creation is in travail and that mankind's rebirth will be the signal for nature's rebirth. Our species rising after its long descent will drag all nature up with it. Because in our species, the Lord of nature is now included. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is, look, the whole world that God created was good. And we actually recognize it, tantalizing beauties and all of these things which we find incredibly beautiful and incredibly desirable. But yet we also see in nature that it seems as if this really good creation has gone terribly wrong. It's been spoiled. And what C.S. Lewis goes on to say is, In Romans 8, we're told that the whole natural world is going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored. It's going to be reconciled. Now, what's really interesting about all of this is it reminds us 
that even though God created everything good and it has fallen, that God has not abandoned his creation. He's come to restore it. He's come to redeem it. He's come to reconcile it. In fact, in Colossians 1, that's exactly what it says. That in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. What C.S. Lewis is trying to get at is to remind us that what Jesus was doing in his miracles and the greatest miracle resurrection was to show us or to demonstrate to us that God is not done with this world. Now think about it for a minute. Um, we have eyes and our eyes are meant to see stuff. And so when we encounter somebody who is blind, we generally say, oh, that, that's not what we should have eyes for. Our eyes are meant to see, not not see. So when Jesus encounters somebody who is blind, what does he do? He comes up to them and he heals them. Now he heals them to show them that you should be seeing and the fact that you do not see, I'm coming to reverse that and I'm giving your sight back. And those who are deaf, they, they have ears but they cannot hear. And so Jesus encounters a deaf person and says, I'm giving you your hearing back. You see, the whole, the whole creation was good and it fell because of sin. And because of that sin, there was a curse. And everything began to be undone and spoiled. But what Jesus came to do was to put in reverse everything that happened because of the curse. So whenever he sees somebody who is dead, who is the worst uh, punishment of sin and evil, he raises them to new life. When somebody cannot walk, he comes alongside of them and he enables them to walk again. And all of these miracles are indications that Jesus Christ came to restore, to redeem, and to reconcile all things to himself. And so in every miracle, we have a small depiction of what God intends to do with the world, namely to make it good again. God's not done with this world. And in fact, when people came up to Jesus after hearing him preach, they asked him, okay, well, what sign are you going to do to prove that what you're saying is true? And he said, I won't give you a sign because you are a wicked generation. But I will give you this sign, the sign of Jonah, which is the sign that as Jonah was gone for three days and then came back, Jesus is going to be gone for three days, but he's coming back. And in that resurrection, he was crucified and dead and buried for three days, and on the third day he rose from the dead. What Jesus is saying is, in my resurrection, that is the pinnacle and that is the apex of every other miracle. What you see in the resurrection is exactly why I came. I've come to restore. I've come to redeem. I've come to reconcile all things. Now, the Bible calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits, which means the first of many more to come. Now picture this with me. I, I hate this, but just picture this with me. If you have a bowl full of paper clips, now you have an unruly child in your house or maybe a husband or wife who is unruly, and they take paper clips and they put all the paper clips together. You know what I'm talking about? So you have these paper clips all together. If you pick out one paper clip, you know, because you got a paper clip something and then pretty soon you have 74 of them. You're like, oh, who did this? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So when Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits, what that means is he's the first that is uh, resurrected. But there are many more who are coming. And the image that we're supposed to have is those of us who are in Christ, we're going to be resurrected like his resurrection. Which means the resurrection of Jesus is like the first paperclip. And then every paperclip that's attached underneath that is all of us who are also being resurrected with Jesus. But because Jesus had a human body, he's also united to the created world. Which means the created world, trees and grasses and rocks and water are also paperclip to Jesus' resurrection. So when Jesus rises, all of creation rises. And what that tells us is this. Behold. Jesus is making all things new again. All things. So, when the New Testament, and it constantly does this, when it refers to the gospel, what it means is it's the good news, the good message of the reconciliation of God to all things in the person of Christ. Now, that's, that's good news. 
Because everything that is wrong with this world, everything that's broken in this world, every injustice in this world is going to one day come untrue. It's It's going to be undone. And so when the, when the New Testament used the word gospel, it means good news of God reconciling all things to himself through Jesus' death and resurrection. The fact is God is making all things new again. It won't always be like this. And it all began with the resurrection. So when we have these miracles here, it's, it's setting us up to anticipate a message about the resurrection and a message about God doing something new. That's what they're there for. Now, because we have so many verses, I can't read everything. But now we're going to be introduced to a man named Cornelius. Peter and Cornelius are going to have two separate visions, but they're going to, those two visions are going to collide with one another. Now, remember what we were talking about, the message of reconciliation, and that's what it is, the gospel, message of reconciliation. It multiplies as we share it vocally while practicing biblical hospitality. And we'll see how the biblical hospitality is woven in here. So we're introduced to Cornelius. We know about Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a a military leader in the Roman Empire. So he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But we read this in verse 2, that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So something we learn about Cornelius is he worships Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. So he worships Yahweh. He has a fear of God. He respects God. He also prays to God. And the other thing he does is he gives alms. Alms is when you are generous with what you have in order to meet the needs of others. So we understand about Cornelius. He fears Yahweh. He's also a generous man. He's as close to being Jewish as you can get without actually being Jewish. He's not circumcised. He doesn't obey the law. But he's close. And he receives a vision. And God gives him something to do in that vision. Verse 5. He says, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we have this picture of of after Peter healed Dorcas or Tabitha in Joppa, Peter started hanging out with a guy named Simon who's a tanner. Now we know that in Joppa, it's by the sea that uh, Peter was hanging out at Simon's house and his house was like a beach house. Now, when you think of beach houses, I don't know about you, but what I think about are hammocks. I don't know why. I can't get it out of my mind. So I picture Peter sitting there in his hammock at Simon's house just hanging out. And while he's hanging out at the beach, seagulls flying over, waves crashing on on the shore, chilling in his hammock, Cornelius is getting a vision and these three people, two, two servants and a devout soldier, are on their way to ask him to come to Cornelius' house. Which leads us to Peter's vision. While Peter is at Simon's house, he's hungry. So he asked some people if he could get something to eat. And they began to prepare it. So he went up on the rooftop to pray, to relax. And while he was up there, he himself gets a vision. And we see it in verse 11. Now he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, this may not shock us, but for Peter, this was probably shocking. Three o'clock in the afternoon, you're hungry, you're hanging out in your hammock, and then God gives you a vision. And the vision is this blanket being dropped down, and on the blanket are a bunch of reptiles and birds and animals. And then you hear a voice telling you to kill those things and eat them. Now, we may just not want to eat those things because they sound gross. But as a Jew, you don't want to eat those things because they are explicitly commanded by God in the book of Leviticus not to eat them. 
In fact, Leviticus chapter 10 verse 10 says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 25 says, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. What God does is he wants his people to be so distinct from the people, the other people of the world that he asks them that they should have certain kind of dietary restrictions. And those dietary restrictions are identity markers for Jews. And now all of a sudden there is Peter who's getting a vision about how God is telling him that those dietary restrictions, which are identity creators... He needs to forget about that. There's something new happening. Something new is happening. Now, what in the world's going on? The reality is we have Cornelius on one side, who is a Gentile, and we have Peter on another side, who is a Jew, and they are on a definitive crash course in which their two lives are going to collide and intersect. And God is orchestrating the whole thing. But here's the problem. In order to get Cornelius and Peter to have their lives intersect, all the obstacles which might hinder from that intersection happening need to be removed. You see, as a good Jew, there's no way Peter would ever accept the invitation of hospitality by a Gentile. He could not. He could not eat what they offered. He could not associate with them. He could not even go into their house. And here is Peter getting a vision about these animals and creatures that he's supposed to kill. And he's supposed to eat them. And for Peter, he's thinking to himself, you've got to be kidding me. I have no idea what in the world is going on. The very thing that sets me apart from other people. Is God really like separating those distinctions like is he is he eliminating this like what is God doing in fact that's exactly what we see verse 16 says that God had to do this three times in order to get Peter's attention it's so serious it's so significant it's so new it's groundbreaking God has to repeat himself and then in verse 17 while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean so he's sitting there in his hammock, scratching his head. Seagulls are flying by. Waves are crashing on the seashore. He can just hear all the sounds of what it means to be in a city by the sea. All of a sudden, he hears in the distance the voices. And he can't make them out whose voices they are or what they're saying, but there's some voices down there. And while all of that has happened in verse 19, while Peter was pondering his vision, the Spirit of the Lord said to him, Behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I have to, I have to highlight that last phrase, without hesitation. You see, for a good Jew at this time, to be invited by a Gentile to your house or to eat something that is like acceptable by Gentiles but not by Jews, all of that, it would cause hesitation. Whoa, I don't know about that. Let me think about that. So God's informing Peter, no, 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 I don't want you to hesitate. I need you to go. And, the, and, and the, the emphasis, the next clause is for I have sent them. I want you to go with these Gentiles because I sent them to you. So Peter's been invited to a Gentile or he's a, He's about to be invited by some Gentiles. So he goes downstairs, verse 21. He says, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel and to send for you to come and look at the phrase, to his house. So hear what you have to say. So Peter is invited by a Gentile to come share in this Gentile's house, which means also probably to eat. Now, this is significant. 
Because good Jews would not accept that. But Peter is told, go without hesitation. So what do we see next? Verse 23. Peter actually reverses this invitation and invites these Gentiles into his own house. Now, I think this is kind of interesting because Simon Peter is not even at his own house. So he just volunteers Simon the Tanner's house. Like, Simon, hey, man, I uh, got these guys. They're going to stay with us. They're what? Yeah, man, it's good. Generous, very generous. So the next day they all rose and they went with him. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And so here's the picture. You have the three guys, the, the two servants and the soldier who are sent from Cornelius. They, you know, they roll up their sleeping bag and they're, you know, up. The slumber party is over and they're heading out. And Peter with a couple of his brothers from Joppa, they're all going with them. Maybe there's five of them, six of them, seven of them, who knows. But they all start heading over to Cornelius' house, which is in Caesarea. Now what's interesting about what's happening is we have to remember that on the forefront of, of what's happening and the foreground of what's happening, it's, it's Peter being invited by Cornelius and there's about to be an exchange. Perhaps there's going to be a conversation. It's the Bible and so we know that probably the gospel is going to get shared at some point. But in the foreground is the, all of that. But there's also some things happening in the background. And we can't overlook what's happening in the background. In the background of, of this whole narrative and this whole section is the idea of hospitality. A Gentile is inviting a Jew to be, and, and, and the offer is an hospitable offer. Come, come be at my house, come eat my food. But not only that, we also see in verse 24 that when they went, they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was waiting for them. And as he was expecting them, here's what he did. He was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. Now, Cornelius is a guy who kind of knew about God, but not really. He kind of knew. And so he gets this vision. He says, guys, I need you to go get this Peter character, bring him on back. And in the meantime, in those two days that transpire, he goes and finds all of his relatives and all of his close friends, and he invites them to his house. you got to come check this out. you got to come hear what this guy's going to say because God sent or told me to send for them, and they're coming here, and, and he's going to say something. you got to be here for that. And you can see Cornelius is increasing his hospitality. He's opening up his home for all of these people to come and see. And then something goofy happens. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Uh-oh. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. In other words, what are you doing? Which, which again helps us to understand Cornelius, he had an idea of who God was, but he didn't fully understand who God was. And look at this verse 27. As he talked with him, with him so Peter and Cornelius are talking, Peter went in and found many persons gathered. Now just imagine this for a moment. I don't know if you've ever been to a surprise party, but you know how it works. You got the lights off, you're hiding around the corner, and you wait for the person to come in, and boom, surprise, and everyone's freaked out, or at least that person is. Well, just imagine it's kind of like that. It's a surprise party, except for it's really not. The lights are still on. But you have like the punch bowl and you got the veggie tray and the pigs in a blanket over here. Everyone's hanging out, milling around, his family and close friends. Peter's thinking he's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Cornelius. And he's entering into this guy's house with a little bit of apprehension and kind of wondering what in the world is God doing. Turns the corner, boom, there's like 40 people staring at him. Oh, hey, everyone. And, of course, they have their little, you know, trays of food and, you know, the carrots still dripping ranch and stuff. And they're kind of like, oh, this is the guy that we're here for? And so, and so do you, are you there? Can you see that? This is, this is what's happening. And what's really interesting is Peter's first words are this, verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Those aren't encouraging words. Hey, everyone, you guys all look great. Not like that. He walks in, he looks at everyone who are Gentiles, not of his nationality, not of his race. And what does he say? Hey, you guys realize I shouldn't be here, right, with a bunch of you guys. You realize that we should not associate right now. You realize that what is taking place right now in Cornelius' house is completely out of the norm. 
And so even Peter is building this moment up for his Gentile audience to understand what is happening is new. What is happening is exciting. What is happening is unprecedented. What in the world is God up to? And then he says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. And then when you bounce up to verse 28 and look at the second half, you realize why Peter was so willing to be there? It's because God has shown me, he says, that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has given me a vision of food, but I understand that that food is to help me understand that what used to culturally divide us, racially divide us, God is taking that obstacle away and now we can have fellowship with one another. And we can be united in hospitality. And now I realize, even though you invited me and I shouldn't have said yes, because God is making all things new again and God is doing something, I'm here. Now in this moment, the dividing walls, culturally speaking, that distinguished one from another are breaking down. And what I find interesting is how the dividing walls of cultural distinctions of race and economics and all that kind of stuff, those walls are being broken down as people break bread. That's amazing. I read this verse a couple weeks ago. It's Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul writes about this very same thing that's happening in Peter's life with Cornelius. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what, what Paul is getting at is you have to realize, Jew and Gentile, that in Christ the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And that is accomplished through the blood of Christ. And then he goes on and it says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's not mixing language here. He's trying to be completely honest and open and straightforward. Jew and Gentile are now made one in the person of Christ. And so in the church, we all, regardless of our cultural distinctions, are being knit together by the Spirit, and we are now one people. <laughs> Paul goes on and actually talks about this. He calls this the mystery of the gospel. This is a mystery. That God would unite two very different people together in one body called the church. He says this in Ephesians 3 verse 6, the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on to say in verse 8 that he was commissioned with the gospel to preach it to the Gentiles. And then in verse 9 he says that he's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul is saying, look, the whole point of me preaching to the Gentiles is to give them light. And the light, the illumination, is the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. And then in verse 10, look at the screen. If you don't have the Bible, look at the screen, verse 10. Here's a purpose statement. A purpose statement. Whenever you see so that, it's your purpose. So the reason why God is doing this, here's the purpose, is so that... Through the church. Now when we read church here, oftentimes we think of building or we think of institution, like Golden Hills. Or we think of a representative or a face, like Pastor Larry or Pastor Phil, something like that. 
But here it's talking about the church universal. All the saints. Look at this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul's saying is, look, it's through the church that the profound mystery of the gospel is made known. Or in other words, the watching world around us who are hearing about the gospel, perhaps if we're sharing it, are wondering to themselves, what is this gospel thing all about? And the answer is, go to the church and look at the people who are gathered there. That's what the gospel is all about. It's the fact that the church is comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. Remember that? Revelation chapter 5. And we also know from Colossians chapter 1 that God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus. And that includes relationships between races and between genders and between socioeconomic divisions. And so what Paul is saying is, look, the church... The church is the visible expression of the gospel played out in real life. These people in the church ought not to like each other. Different economic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, educational influences, races, skin colors, all that kind of stuff. All of these things should divide us. But in the church, because of the shed blood of Jesus... And the fact that God is uniting all things together in himself, which is supposed to be depicted in the church because of that, the gospel is made known. In fact, John 17 says this, that the, he, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. And he prays for the unity of the church so that, purpose, as the watching world watches the unity of the church, they may conclude that Jesus was sent from the Father. Our unity is significant. It is how we make evident, how we make known the glories of the gospel, which is the good news that God is reconciling all things to himself, and that includes people. So when we live reconciled lives with one another, we are depicting the reconciliation of God in all things. And so when we flash back to Peter and Cornelius, we see Peter standing there receiving hospitality, a Jew, in the home of a Gentile. And before he's even able to utter the words of the gospel, he is standing in their presence, embodying it. You want to know what the gospel is? This is what it looks like. What used to divide us, it's gone. We have fellowship. We can have hospitality with one another. Now, when I've preached on this before at other places and, and brought this topic up, a lot of times people will reject it or at least push back and they will say, Phil, you're just preaching a whole bunch of social gospel stuff. You're just trying to inspire us to be social activists. And I'm going, uh, no. I'm trying to get you to see the Bible and how the Bible tells us that things like racial reconciliation and things like economic reconciliation and things like reconciliation because people hate each other, that when we pursue those things in the church, it is a gospel issue and it is infinitely important in the church. Now, some may reject that if I ask the question, is racial reconciliation in the church a gospel issue? People tend to say, no, it's not. It's as a peripheral thing. But before you decide, let's read Galatians 2 together. This is Paul depicting what happened, this episode that happened in Antioch. He says this. But when Cephas, who's another name for Peter, the same Peter we've been talking about. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that is, certain Jews came from Jerusalem, before that all happened, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, the Jews from Jerusalem, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now look at this in verse 14. 
But Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Or in other words, here you are, a Jew, having fellowship and experiencing the hospitality of Gentiles, and then all of a sudden some Jews from Jerusalem come in and you begin to separate yourself. Paul then confronts Peter to his face and tells him that he is condemned. Why? Because he is not living out the gospel by being reconciled to somebody of a different race. Racial reconciliation in the church is a gospel issue. And I think that's important for us to see. And that's one of the beauties of uh, being at Golden Hills, I'm telling you. I love being at Golden Hills. And one of the parts of that is because I see so many people from all kinds of walks of life. And here we are gathering, worshiping Jesus' name. We have unity. And that is a gospel issue. We are displaying the gospel. So this whole hospitality thing where people are sharing their meals together and sharing their, their space together in their house, this is a depiction. This is a, a visible expression of what God is doing in Christ by making all things new again. And we need to have that. We need to have that. So Peter then asked this question, and I asked you then what you sent, uh, why you sent for me in verse 29. Cornelius then uh, recounts to him all the different visions and everything that happened. And in verse 30, 33, Cornelius says, So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. My friends, my family, we're all gathered here to hear what you have to say because we know when you open your mouth, God is going to speak to us. And you guys have to hear this. When, when you hear what Peter's about to say to them, but then you also realize that, that what he's about to say is the foreground, and then you have the background of hospitality, it makes for a very powerful picture of the gospel. So here's what Peter says, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea and, and beginning, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then look at the miracles connected to the resurrection. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that he is the one who appointed by, is appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And, and you, I don't know if you saw that or not, but, but Peter's preaching right from the beginning. God shows no partiality. Come. Whatever race you are, come. Whatever your background Whatever your sin history, whatever your education, whatever your economic stature, come. Come. No wonder why Jesus says, whoever is weak, whoever is weary, whoever is heavy laden, whoever is tired, come. And you will find rest. Let's stop for a second and think about that invitation. When Jesus invites people to come. Is that not hospitality? In fact, when Jesus says, come if you're tired and, and, and come and rest, I will give you rest. And if we remember some of the things that the Bible talks about, about heaven and the new creation, do you remember one of the first things we get to do in heaven is eat. We get to have the marriage supper of the lamb. So Jesus invites us, come to relationship with me and eat with me. 
Not only that, but we're told also that God is preparing a place for us, a city to dwell. That is hospitality. So God is a hospitable God. He's inviting us to his life and he's inviting us to commune with him and to eat with him and to live with him. That is hospitality. And what's really interesting about that hospitality is it costs God a lot to offer it. You and I balk when we want to invite people over to the house. Do we not? Man, I got a vacuum. <laughs> I got to dust some things. And we're thinking that's, that's too steep of a price for me to invite people over to the house. But let's stop for a second and just realize this. In order for, Jesus, uh, for God to invite people to his house and have a relationship with him, it cost him his son's life. So what does that mean to you as you contemplate that? The offer, the invitation is given to you and the invitation itself costs God his son. That's how much you're valuable. That's how much God wants you. And he invites you, come. Everyone, come. Like I said last week, it is not up to us to decide as the arbiters who is eligible and who is not eligible for God's grace. Everyone is welcome. And if you notice the central theme of, of Peter's preaching is the resurrection. God is doing all things. He's making all things new again. Brothers and sisters, the church is something new. It's a new thing. Well, God is welcoming everyone. Come. We read this in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcision, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because, why? The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, and look at this phrase, even on the Gentiles. They're amazed. But I think their amazement is not so much that the Holy Spirit has come. They're amazed that Gentiles are now included in the church. And it, it, it shocks me sometimes that we aren't more amazed at the incredible thing God is doing in his church. That God is reconciling people from all walks of life and cultural distinctions. We're all coming together in the church. Amazing. And I find that amazing because there's no natural explanation. Because when you look around in the natural world and you look outside these walls and you look at what's going on in our world, it's straight jacked up. Everyone's broken. Everyone hates each other. Everyone is trying to eliminate each other and do all this kind of stuff to each other. And, and God is trying to say, I know, but in the church I want you to be countercultural. Where everyone else is trying to kill and destroy each other, you guys are loving and serving each other. Where cultural divisions of race and, and skin color and socioeconomics are usually how you divide and deciding what neighborhood you live in and stuff like that. Instead, in the church, you're all going to live together. You're going to share together. Now, for you and I, that's a scary thought, right? To be hospitable to people who are different than us. I mean, after all, in America, our houses are our fortress. It's about me. You got a garage door opener. You know what I'm talking about. You drive down the street and you're like, come on. And then it opens and you get in there, go down. Or else they'll see me and I have to talk to them. Yes, I'm in. You know what I'm talking about. But think about this. And that's everyone, regardless if you're a Christian or not. But think about this. What if Christians actually practiced biblical hospitality and left their garage open and went next door and invited people who, who they didn't know, maybe not even Christians? What if we went around and we actually invited people over to our house to share a meal together and to share our lives with? Would that not be the background and the context in which we can share the message of reconciliation? And it won't be mere words. It will be action as well. What if we did that? Well, that would be countercultural. I know. And there's not much about us as Christians which isn't countercultural. So let's get crazy <laughs> and be hospitable. If you need doilies, do it. <laughs> I love this book called The Simplest Way to Change the World. I was caught by the title. I'm a good American, and so I try to find the simplest and easy way to do everything. If you can microwave it. Right on. So I saw this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World. I thought, man, that's a noble endeavor, change the world, and you can do so simply. And then I saw the, uh, the subtext, and it talked about biblical hospitality. And I was thinking to myself, huh? And I read this quote. 
As the early church shared meals together and practiced hospitality with one another in their homes, they became a compelling demonstration of the good news that could create such a reconciled community. Everyone was invited into this community, centered on God's hospitality to wayward sinners. You see, hospitality is a theology of recognition where through simple acts like food, laughter, we convey the truth that wayward sinners are made in the image of God and can be reconciled to him. Where we can say that, say to those who might doubt their worth or doubt their purpose, I see you over there. You're welcome here. Come on over, pull up a chair. Can you imagine a church where we see people in our culture who are broken, who are alienated, who are ostracized, who are wounded, who are hurt, who are hating and being hated? If we offered this invitation of hospitality, you think no one sees you, but I see you. And it's not because, I, oh, I see you, I'm going to get you. It's I see you. I see your hurt. I see your pain. And in your hurt and in your pain, I'm, I'm offering this. Pull up a chair. Come over to my house. Let's talk. That's biblical hospitality. It's how God treats us. And it's how we should engage the world with the gospel because God's doing something new you guys by his blood he is ransoming people from every tongue tribe nation and people group making them a kingdom and a priesthood to serve our God forever I don't want us to lose that so father help us I pray as a church because this is indeed countercultural. this will be difficult for many of us to open our homes and to invite those who are different than us into our space, into our lives. But God, you have done a supernatural work in our own hearts of bringing us to saving faith. Jesus rose from the dead. And what that tells me is you can do anything. So God, if our hearts are cold and unwilling to invite, would you break our hearts, soften them, and provide us with the warmth that we need to welcome strangers. And God, if we are stingy, I pray that you loosen our clutch on the things that we possess because ultimately they're yours anyway. And God, you would cause us to be generous people and that we would be the kind of church and the kind of people who not only celebrate the gospel every Sunday together as we gather, but we celebrate the gospel every week as we welcome people into our homes. God, there's so many hurting people in this world. I pray that you would use us as a church to welcome all the weak, all the wounded, all the hurting, that they may find healing. For your glory and our joy in Jesus' name, amen.